Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Desmond Cole. Hello. Hello. It's so cold. It's really hot in this studio. You you could definitely hide away from the winter in here. This is the place to be in the winter, but it is so cold outside. It is so cold in Canada. It's so cold, I can't even remember 2017. I, I cannot <laughs> remember that billionaires conspired to artificially jack up the price of bread in this country for 14 years. Totally forgot. I'm sure they're thrilled at your memory loss. I, I, I can't remember that Toronto's mayor angrily argued against opening new homeless shelters to deal with the extreme cold temperatures. I have totally forgotten about the Quebec mosque shooting. I forgot about the one guy there who saved people's lives. Canada 150, uh, Justin Trudeau's all-inclusive Aga Khan getaway. What are those things even? So much has probably happened in the first three days of this year that you don't even need to remember 2017. Will you help me remember some of these things today? I'll try. It's good to have you here. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Jordan Koop, Jenny Bywald, Lubna Akabir, Will McKinnon, Bernie Perus, Max Lupo, Daniel Pierce, and Sean Gobi. I'm Sean Gobi. I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo. I supported Candleland originally because I enjoyed Search Engine and wanted to see what you would do next. I increased my support because Candleland's investigative work, critical eye, and showcasing of new talent is making all Canadian media better. 
And Desmond, this episode is not brought to you by Canadian journalists for free expression, but I'm going to talk about CGFE for a moment because they really need it. Uh, they have announced that they may go under this year. My disclosure here, I give money to CJFE. I've uh, volunteered for CJFE. CJFE stands up for free expression of Canadians, reporters specifically, but Canadians in general. They have done things. They've accomplished things. Bill C-51 is not as horrible and freedom-killing as it was originally supposed to be because of their interventions. They won a campaign to pass Canada's first press shield law. They were instrumental in getting Mohamed Fahmy freed. This is an organization, it is tiny, it does incredible stuff every year. They're trying to get $100,000. They're so small and they do such big things. And they're like $12,824 there. They're, they're like 13% of the way there. And they might go under if people don't help them. So Can uh, I chime in on that really quick? Do. Well, I was very honored uh, to be awarded the Penn Canada Ken Philco Prize for Freedom of Expression. So I feel compelled to say, as somebody who's been acknowledged for this, that uh, the work that CJFE does is really important. One of the things you didn't mention that I believe they also helped out with last year and last couple of years is Ben Maku at Vice, yeah. who the RCMP went after because he wouldn't turn over his journalism work by force. So now he faces jail time for that and CJFE got involved in that case. I think it's really, really, really important for us to remember that freedom of expression is not an issue that's happening somewhere else, that it's relevant to our government trying to silence people or coerce people who do our work in our country. And I am a beneficiary of CJFE's advocacy, so I, I do want to support them also and say to everybody out there to do the same. Go to cjfe.org future and figure out a way to help. They make it pretty easy. Desmond, before yeah. 2018, we heard the news that the Westons, Weston family, Weston International, huge corporation, uh, bakery, Wonder Bread, uh, also the Westons of Loblaws, both of those companies uh, were involved in a price-fixing scheme colluding with other unnamed grocers throughout Canada to artificially inflate and price fix the cost of bread for 14 years. And then we heard that we're getting a $25 gift card. And that first bit kind of disappeared. How much bread does that buy? Well, if you buy the one with the like seeds in the crust, the seeds, you know, it might be a little more. You know, it might not go as far gluten, that $25. You know, where are you on this? Uh, you could, in, in the city of Toronto, I think I think if you wanted to, you could probably spend like $15 on a, on a loaf of bread in Toronto if you I, wanted to. Uh, Whole Foods, anyone? But if, uh, but if you're buying Wonder Bread, that is not what you're looking for out of a loaf of bread. I want to talk about how quickly, I mean, this story came out on December 19th. Okay. It came out six days before Christmas. It came out before it was a news dump that was very carefully engineered to be gone from our inquiry. And the $25 gift card did a very good job. There's more written, I believe. I saw a lot more news coverage. Where do I get my gift card? What can I use it on? What are the terms of the gift card than of this price fixing scheme? So we're going to talk today about a story that I think has already fucking disappeared, which is- Oh, we're not going to talk more about bread? 
We're going to talk about bread. We're not going to talk about gift cards. Okay. Bread is exactly what we're going to talk about. I mean, th- th- what is the phrase when like, hey, enough of your politics, philosophy, ideology. What has this to do with the price of bread? Right? Like, like that is what people say when they say, what does this have to do with what I need to live? This basic staple of sustenance. Like who buys Wonder Bread? Families buy Wonder Bread for their kids. Right? We're talking about a plot here, a conspiracy It is a conspiracy. It's against the law. It is a 14-year conspiracy against working families, against the poor, a conspiracy against the hungry, and it is fucking illegal. I mean, this is how we measure the cost of living. Going back to like World War I is like, what did it cost your, your wage versus a loaf of bread? It's like this basic unit of sustenance that we use to measure this. And for 14 years, it's not just Loblaws. Sobeys has come out and said, oh, Loblaws, you've thrown us under the bus. But they're being investigated. This goes across Canada for 14 years. McLean's looked at StatsCan data of the cost of groceries over that same 14-year period. And you could see bread is like shooting well above the cost of all other groceries in how it has exploded in price. But we're getting a $25 gift card. The Westons, meanwhile, got immunity from any criminal liability. This is some next level Scrooge stuff, man. Like right in 2017, like right before our eyes. Um, The thing that I've noticed about the media coverage in this case is that the idea of price fixing just seems to be a given in the reporting. And I've had a hard time understanding this because I'm going to acknowledge that I don't really understand price fixing. Like I don't understand the actual mechanism of it. And so when I read about this, I'm reading a lot of stories that are seemingly assuming that I just get what price fixing is and that maybe even if I don't, I don't really need to get the mechanism because it's bad. And I'm sure it sounds like something that Scrooge or Galen Weston would do, but I feel like we need to understand specifically what price fixing is and how it works. And I haven't seen a lot of that. Well, we need to know what it is in this instance. And the details in this instance are completely absent. You got to pluck the little hints from the coverage, okay? They turned themselves in to the Competition Bureau in March of 2015. They have known about this for almost two years. I mean, of course, they were a party to it. So somebody there knew about it for over 14 years. But- the government has known about this for almost two years and the Westons turned themselves into the competition bureau in exchange for immunity almost two years ago. Now the media, where are the questions? Just what you said. How did you conspire with the other grocers to fix the price of bread? We have StatsCan data on the price of bread overall, but specifically in this criminal conspiracy, how was that accomplished and how much did it cost people who are trying to feed themselves and their kids. The, the, those questions, I mean, like, I, we're not angry enough. I, 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 I definitely think the Canadians are not angry enough. And I think that that has a lot to do with the way it's being covered. But before you get angry, you have to know what happened. And where I think the media has completely fallen down, I mean, comes out on December 19th, everybody's packing up to go away for the holidays already. Like you're going to launch some big, you know, do your explainers, do your investigations. Like they say in, you know, paragraph six of some of these reports, it'll all come out in court documents in time. So this is being expertly stage managed by the Westons and their crisis communications people. Everything from the $25 gift card to the December 19th uh, confession, uh, Galen Weston, oh, he's beside himself. It's almost like it was done to him. 
if you read his messaging on it. Like he is shocked and appalled. And we all remember the Westons and Joe Fresh and he was shocked and appalled then too. And they're, they're shocked and appalled and they maintain this elite status and they're wonderful philanthropists and nobody dares really get up in arms about them. Something I've been thinking about lately as it relates to power and the media in terms of political figures is that we can never really get access to them for lengthy periods of time to ask them questions. But I think we can translate that to people like owners of big corporations also who have arguably more influence, like way more influence than do many politicians. Why would Galen Weston entertain the questions that you and I have about how he fixed prices? Like the idea that he would even sit down with us, that he would convene an audience to try and explain this. It's not in his interest to do so. And he lives in a climate where he will be protected and he's already been offered immunity. So he doesn't really need to talk about this. What he what he needs to do, and which it seems like he's trying to do, is to now take the uh, attention away from himself. Well, look, I don't expect the uh, captains of industry who are caught in massive criminal conspiracies to sit down for bracing, aggressive accountability interviews with journalists because it's good for their companies to do so or because they're nice guys. I expect them to do it when the media is aggressive enough to demand and demand and demand it and the public therefore demands and demands and demands it until they basically have no choice. And perhaps, and I think in a case like this, what this actually makes me think of is the annual hunger report that the Daily Bread Food Bank puts out every year, they do an excellent job of actually painting a picture of what it looks like. We have not done a great job in the media of describing on a day-to-day reality and basis, well, what does that look like for you when you've got to make these decisions about what kind of brand to buy because you don't have enough money? And in the absence of powerful people like the Westons sitting down with the media, which again, they will never do, that's the story that I think we need to tell is when corporations rip off the public, who gets impacted the most? What does it change in their life? How does their health perhaps change as a result? What about the psychology of worrying about yeah. these these prices and how you're going to afford to live? And I think that's the message here is that just because uh, the corporations won't own up to their price fixing doesn't mean we can't put pressure in other ways like telling the story of the consequence of their price fixing. It's weird what people do get upset about. I, I received more angry tweets and emails about this bread price fixing story from people saying, stop saying that people need bread to survive. You know, there's a lot of people on low carb diets. You're forgetting them. You're cutting them out of the story. Desmond, here are some sounds that Canadians heard from the media months ago, this past October, I believe, when Taliban hostage Josh Boyle and his wife and his children born in captivity, born in Taliban captivity, came home to Ottawa. This home, about an hour outside Ottawa, is now a suburban sanctuary for a family now free. The calm and normalcy inside this home in tiny Smith's Walls will take some getting used to for Josh Boyle. I think people should just have some compassion for those individuals right now. I mean, they have been through a lot. The kids he protected, like his four-year-old son, are now getting their first taste of a real home. And with them, Boyle finds some comfort. Perhaps not enough comfort because he is today in a jail cell in Ottawa on 15 charges, including sexual assault, forcible confinement, uttering death threats, and administering a noxious drug. 
A publication ban conceals the identity of the alleged victims. Publication ban is something, of course, the courts do when there's a sexual assault, alleged sexual assault, or when children are involved. I do not know, but I cannot help but wonder if the alleged victims include his family. And I'm reminded about the questions I had at the time that we heard those first news reports, Desmond. And I know you're new to this story. What I was trying to make sense of when Josh Boyle and his family came home and and the media basically told a story of this warm homecoming and the grandparents embracing grandchildren that they never met before. And you you heard it there, Josh Boyle, maybe he'll find peace. He was a Taliban hostage. Uh, But as you read the details, you're like, wow, this guy was backpacking in Afghanistan with his pregnant wife when they went to an internet cafe in a known Taliban stronghold community. And that's where they were. And his ex-wife was Omar Khadr's sister. Now, I don't want to say anything, and I have nothing to say uh, about Omar Khadr, but I can say something about his sister. His sister applauded the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Omar Khadr's sister talked about how great it is to be a martyr. And that's Boyle's ex-wife. But that's just association. There's no guilt by association. And the media, I think all these things, people were very, very reluctant to make anything of it. The fact that when Josh Boyle came back, Canadian-born Josh Boyle, a white man who looked a lot like he was still wearing, like... Afghani garb that his wife was wearing the the niqab. I had questions. Was that a survival tactic? Is he a convert? You read in these news stories. Well, his, his former, his former colleagues say he was a convert. He considered himself a expert on Islamic terrorism who, who boasted that he wrote most of what Wikipedia has to say about Islamic terrorism. And all of this did not lead me to any particular conclusion, but it made me very curious. And, you know, the media's take on this, don't ask any questions. There's no guilt by association. Let's not do victim blaming. There were actual editorials saying, let's not do victim blaming. I didn't have victim blaming, but in my conversation uh, about this with Justin Ling on this show, I said, I'm not blaming the victim. I'm curious about the victim. Like, I don't think that this guy just happened to get imprisoned and become a, a Taliban hostage. And there were things that you really had to dig to find that the media was not really interested in exploring. Boyle wouldn't go on an American plane. Okay, that makes sense. You know, maybe he didn't want to return on American soil and face, uh, you know, interrogation. Maybe because the Cotter connection, he was he was concerned about that. But he said this strange thing about how he was going to give the Taliban a chance to rectify the crimes against humanity that he and his family had suffered before we turn to other outlets to seek our justice. This idea that he was deferring to Taliban high command to make this right with the Taliban offshoot that had imprisoned him. All of it was so strange and none of it was explained by these media reports, again, of this, you know, this warm story of this, of this homecoming. And now we have more confusing reports now that he is facing 15 charges, very serious charges. He describes himself as a pacifist and a hippie. He's facing sexual assault charges and uttering death threats and, and forcing somebody to take a noxious substance. I don't know what the hell is going on here, but what is really concerning is seeing the right-wing social media sphere and and the right-wing press in Canada seize on this as obvious evidence of the media's left-wing bias, that we are so politically correct and naive that we willfully ignored all of the red flags of Joshua Boyle to the extent where there's even, you know, Justin Trudeau met with Joshua Boyle and his family upon their return to Canada and I'm sure that in an Andrew Shear upcoming fundraising email, there will be these photos of Trudeau with Boyle as evidence of something or other. 
and you know it's it's becoming a, a source of confirmation bias. I don't think that the press was trying to cover up terrorist connections of Joshua Bell. I think that the media does not know. And rather than saying we don't know, they tried to fit this all into a predetermined narrative box. And I think that that now is looking like a really bad mistake. It's looking like a bad mistake that we told the story that way. It's looking like a bad mistake of, of Trudeau to kind of play into that is like, well, let's have a photo op with this family that's being celebrated for finally being free, you know. We don't know what happened here. And, and I don't, I'm very categorically not making insinuations beyond the fact that there's obviously a very complicated story here that the public has not had the opportunity to even begin to understand. Well, it's a very difficult thing for anybody to tell a complex story, but it's really difficult for us, right? Because we do this work in little bits and bites most of the time. So if you have a little bit and bite to explain a family coming home from a country where they appear to have been captive, is it's horrific, the accounts of what the family actually went through, right? So if you only have a little bit of time to tell that story, um, in our industry, it doesn't surprise me that the angle that you feel people are most able to understand is the homecoming, the returning to safety, the return, returning to normalcy angle. Beyond that, though, there's something else going on here, which I think is actually kind of interesting, because I'm just learning a lot more about this story myself. I wasn't following it before, although I remember hearing the weird things about, like, I don't want to get on a plane and thinking... Who am I to start asking these kinds of questions about a guy who was just tortured? Then mm -hmm. why he doesn't want to go to this country versus that country to come home? Like, that might be a big consideration for me as an outsider, but obviously to this man and his family, they have their reasons and who am I to ask? And I think that that's a cultural issue that we have to think about as journalists, right? Is that there are some stories and there's some work that we have to do sometimes that rubs up against our cultural and our social like safety zone. Well, that's the job, right? The job is who, who am I to ask? Well, you're the press, right? So, you know, it, maybe it's not relevant that he is dressed in sort of like traditional Afghani or Muslim garb, you know, maybe like, what does that have to do with what he's just suffered? You know, give him some space. They've been traumatized. What, what you know, he said some, right. he said some weird things, but you know, uh, how is it my place to, you know, interrogate him on this? You know, like, like let's back off and give the family some space and people even rush to their defense. Okay, uh, that, that, that is the job is to ask those questions. But if you're not going to ask those, please don't have the music swell, you know, and tell a different story that you're trying to push down people's throats. I mean, this is what we do. This is what we do in our jobs every day. And we pick heroes and villains yeah. every day in this work. And I think that's that's all I'm saying is that we have to be conscious of that when we do this job, because there are factors which will tickle our sympathy and our concern. And then there are factors which will cause us to be harsher interrogators of certain people, even if they've been through a completely traumatic and desperate situation and us be like, oh, I don't care. You got to give me the answers. This is important. There are completely times in the media when we do that. And I, I have to say, because this man is a white man, as you described him, I have to wonder if he was, say, Afghani, because that's where he was, and he came back as a Canadian citizen and um, said, my family have been tortured and they were still dressed the way that they were dressed and talking the way that they were talking. I have to wonder if all of that deference for his previous situation and the trauma 
would have still been there. Would he, would he have been afforded the same benefit of the doubt? We do these things a lot. We ask the what if question like I've just done, but I think we always have to. Because ultimately, I do think that as human beings working in a journalism and media environment, I do think that when somebody comes home from a situation like that and we re reasonably believe that the things that were said happened to them happen, I do think we have to give space. I do think we have to give consideration and privacy. I do think that we shouldn't ask questions that will re likely re-traumatize somebody who's been through an incredibly traumatic uh, situation. I see you making that face. I don't uh, know that, you know, th this was an international incident. I mean, Trump is taking credit for giving the Pakistani cops the information, you know. It's still people's lives. It's still people's lives. It's still, yeah. it's still their individual lives. You just talked about a publication ban on the allegations against Josh Boyle now. Why is there a publication ban put down by the Crown? Because the Crown wants to respect the privacy of the people who may have been affected by a crime mm -hmm. and are saying, I know y'all have a lot of questions about this in the media, but now is not the time. I get your point. Right? I, and I think that when you get to these situations where you have, you know, maybe children, you know, maybe victims who, you know, would be re-traumatized by public scrutiny. And then I'm saying, well, the public has a right to know. It's like, well, fuck the public. These are human beings and they're victims. But you know what happens when we don't have all the facts? People rush to conclusions. Like who's going to suffer as a basis? Like we're already seeing the right-wing echo chambers coalescing and converging around this, they're going to draw conclusions and like rank and file Canadian Muslims are going to be the ones who suffer. You know, it, it's going to be just like, oh, here we go again. Trudeau and his media uh, ignoring the warning signs of extremism. What you're saying is really interesting because what you're saying is that no matter what Boyle may or may not have done, there are a group of people in our country who are waiting to weaponize his existence against Muslim people in Canada. That they are waiting for that opportunity no matter what happens. Yeah. I don't even know if they're really interested in him as a dude as they are in this larger notion of somebody protecting Muslim no, They're wondering if he and... can be a weapon in an ideological war. And I would, I would suggest to you that uh, in the absence of facts, which may disprove that, because I think that this guy, my own take on this, he looks unwell and whatever he's doing, I think is a reflection of his own inner struggles and his own choices. I think that's probably what we're going to ultimately find. Uh, it's going to have ramifications for a wide swath of the Canadian population because it's going to be weaponized in that way. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, 
and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Desmond, this is the point in our show when I thank our second sponsor, our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. Desmond, you are a freelancer. I know that you send invoices. So you know the power of a convenient, easy to make, <laughs> beautiful, professional looking invoice. Uh, invoices matter. The way they look matter. They're part of your brand. More importantly, it gets you paid quicker when you can see when people open your invoices and when they know that you can see that and when they can just press a button and pay you by credit card. There's a million reasons why FreshBooks is really the only choice for people sending invoices. But there's another reason to use FreshBooks this time of year because it is tax season. We need to start thinking about this so it doesn't sneak up on you. It is upon us. There is a good chance that many of you are trying to dig your way out from a pile of receipts and spreadsheets. Just do yourself a favor. Stop digging before you completely disappear under that pile check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. If you need to send your accountant a quick summary of the amount of tax you've collected, you press a button, you get a profit and loss summary. They can generate those reports in FreshBooks in seconds instead of the hours it would take you to compile that yourself. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means the next time you use your debit card for a meal, for a tank of gas, for a work-related expense, boom, it is recorded instantly in FreshBooks as such. It is ridiculously easy to use. It is made especially for people who do not like dealing with numbers and who do not like doing their taxes. I count myself among them. If any of this sounds good to you, if you are a freelancer or you're running a small business, you can try it out for free for 30 days. You get unrestricted access for Canada Land listeners to FreshBooks. All you got to do is go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land. And when they ask you, how did you hear about us? Say Canada Land. Desmond, this is the moment on Shortcuts where we duly note that which has not been noted duly, but should be duly noted. What do you have for us? Well, I have a story that's been in the news over the last, say, week and a half but actually pertains to something that happened almost a year ago. Um, we know that on January 29th of 2017, or we should know, that a gunman walked into a mosque in Quebec City and began opening fire on people inside, and he killed six men and wounded several other people. One of the people that he wounded is named Ayman Derbali. And Ayman Derbali saw that this gunman came in to this mosque in Quebec City and that he had a gun and was beginning to shoot. He recognized the situation and tried to basically put himself in the path of this gunman to stop him. He was shot seven times. Um, two of the bullets that entered his body are still in his spinal cord. He is paralyzed forever from the chest up. Um, this story is in the news because his community are fundraising for him. He's set to leave the hospital. He was in a coma for some time. And Ayman Bali now is set to leave the hospital, but uh, he needs a place to live 
as somebody now who has a physical disability and has to learn how to live with that for the rest of his life. And so members of his community, including um, Amir El-Gawabi, who's with the uh, National Council of Canadian Muslims, but this is a side project that she's doing, has been advocating for him and many in his community are advocating to raise $400,000 so that he can come home. And, um, you know, I'm touched by this story for the obvious reasons, but there's something really particular that strikes me about it, which is that I've seen Amira, who is a friend of mine, and others describe Eamon Derbali as a Canadian hero for jumping in front of that gunman and taking bullets that could have been destined for other people. I'm not sure I would call him a Canadian hero, though, and I think it's actually important to make a distinction. And here's why. Canada, just as a story like that, which is a now almost a year old, is mm-hmm. only now coming into our consciousness as a country, Canada, in the larger sense, has really failed to own what happened and why a man walked into a mosque at the beginning of last year and killed six Muslim people and tried to kill many others. We haven't come to terms with that. We haven't owned it. So we don't get to, as a country, put on this mantle of patriotism and say this man is a Canadian hero, when as Canadians, we don't even really want to talk about why that kind of hateful violence keeps happening in this country. I'll give you an example, Jesse. Last year, we saw multiple times white supremacists under the banner of a group called La Merte which in English from French means wolf pack. We saw them marching by the dozens and by the hundreds. Where? In Quebec City, in the same place where a man, a white man, who by all accounts was very, very, shall I say, brainwashed, indoctrinated, poisoned by a hatred, a white supremacist hatred, which drove him to go into this mosque. Now we have people with his ideology marching by the dozens and the hundreds in the same city months after it happened. And the response was very numb from Canada. 2017, where we celebrated our 150th anniversary and all that, it was quite a year. What we wanted was to talk about this thing called Canada and about patriotism and nothing else. And I think that this story falls into that category of people not knowing the names of the six men who were killed in the mosque, of that not being something as a country that we've been grappling with over last year. Like, why did this happen? How are we allowing people who are this dangerous and this hateful to run rampant in our streets? We haven't done that hard work. And so we don't get to claim Eamon Derbali as our nationalistic hero. We first have to actually acknowledge the pain that he and his community and others who were injured in that attack are still going through and to support them. And we can get to the Canadian stuff later. But I think that they are kind of involved in one another. I think that our reluctance to really tell those stories and to really dig deep into how's the community doing now? How are they feeling about white supremacists marching in their streets after their relatives are still wounded and recovering from somebody else yeah. like that, right? Like, I mean, I know how his community is doing from other news reports. A lot of people didn't make the connection. A lot of the reports didn't make the connection that his mosque was barred permission to open a new cemetery. That same mosque. Could you imagine 
like if there had been a church shooting where six people were killed, if there had been a synagogue shooting where six people were being killed, and somebody put themselves in between the shooter and the victims, no politician came to visit Amender Bali, right? Until this uh, Globe story, so credit due, uh, you know, a little bit late, but we finally had the profile of this guy. And their coverage, I think, had something to do with the crowdfunding, and they've raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. They're not at their goal yet. But We've forsaken that mosque, right? We've we have uh, disowned any responsibility for what Bissonette did. Who's you know the breadcrumbs are there leading him to support of, of Donald Trump and white nationalist causes. It's like it didn't happen. You know, I, I get your point. We're finally ready to embrace Amen, but we're we're certainly not ready to own what happened. I don't think we are. So that's that's why I hesitate for us to claim this as some kind of Canadian heroism, and uh, so as not to be a hypocrite, I actually want to read the names of the six men who were killed in that shooting, uh, there's a point to this, other than the fact that I think we should all know their names. And their names are Azadeen Sufyan, Khalid Belkasemi, Abu Bakr Tabti, Mamadou Tanu Berry, Ibrahima Berry, and Abdel Karim Hassan. I think it's worth noting that those are names that uh, people like myself are not even used to saying on a regular basis in the media, let alone exploring stories and histories of. So we do have to do things very basic, like saying these men's names. And if we want to be doing more and uh, telling their stories, we've got to get down to the level of community where this happened and not forget a year later. Like I wonder beyond perhaps the one year anniversary, January 29th of this shooting, I wonder how much more coverage we're going to see of one of the worst incidents of mass murder in modern Canadian history. It is shocking, but quite understandable. Duly noted. Desmond, uh, finally bringing some light to that is something that the Globe and Mail did. I want to talk about and duly note something else that the Globe and Mail is doing. Pretty good thing. They're involved in this international project, the Trust Project. It's just basically a international journalistic effort to say, you know what? People are blaming the media. Politicians are blaming the media. The public is uh, distrusting the media all over the world. We need to do a better job. We need to recognize that we could do a much better job of explaining to people how we do journalism, how we use sources, how we decide what to cover, recognizing, you know, that we share some responsibility for the fact that media is misunderstood. And if we want to make a distinction between ourselves and the fake news, then it's up to us to explain what professional journalism is all about. So the Globe and Mail is announcing that they are a part of this and their editor in chief, this is how he puts it as he announces this, this humble transparency effort. David Walmsley says, I oversee a multi-million dollar budget that is designed to bring you the best journalism on the planet. And each year we have to be better than the year before. It is natural that when the news is available at our fingertips, we don't consider the sweat and guts needed to create the daily miracle. Historically, we left the story to speak for itself, orphaned and in a vacuum, especially with the creation of social media, that vacuum has since been filled by those who shout the loudest. It's amazing the pomp of this guy. Like he is, uh, as he describes himself, a lavishly funded miracle worker doing the best journalism on the planet putting sweat and guts into every story in the face of a bunch of shrieking yahoos on social media. Here you go, public, the trust project. So that's David Walmsley demonstrating transparency. But I did note that the Globe and Mail's trust project reminded me of something. I'm like, what? what? I, I've heard that before. And of course, that took me to the Toronto Stars, the trust project. 
which they've been doing uh, since May of 2017. Um, where they fill you in on how they do journalism. There's some good stuff there about how they make choices. There's also stuff about how their wine critic finds her perfect bottle. And uh, finally explaining how their advice columnist, Ellie, tackles sensitive questions. That, of course, brought to mind the CBC's attempt at transparency, the editor's blog. Remember blogging? They launched the editor's blog uh, some time ago. And then, you know, I don't know. They kind of forgot about it. How we work, how we make decisions, how we serve Canadians. Jennifer McGuire, the head of CBC News, filling you in on the process. Her last post was in 2016. So every now and then this becomes in vogue. And I think that some of it is, is uh, a response to the moment. We're going to finally like, show you the man behind the curtain. We're going to tell you how the sausage is made. And then they don't. I applaud the motivation. I, I applaud the philosophy behind this. I am skeptical as to whether or not based on how David Walmsley rolled it out, the Globe and Mail's trust project will provide us that transparency and humility that it purports to. Duly noted. Desmond. Jesse. The city of Toronto has been telling us that their shelters, they may be really, really crowded, but they're, but they're at like 95% capacity. They've been consistent in telling us that there's still room in their shelters, yet Somehow word has been getting around that when homeless people in this extreme, extreme, deathly cold try to get beds, uh, they're being turned away. How is this, 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 this miscommunication, this confusion spreading around? I know why, because I, I read a tweet from Mayor John Tory's staffer, Syria Grell, former journalist Syria Grell. She said it's perfectly clear what happened. One person tweeted incorrect information and people repeated and reported it without verifying. Damn social media. Somebody tweeted misinformation. And then damn media, they pick up from social media, they report it. That's what happened, according to this quote from Syria Grell. You just came to Canada Land studio from Mayor John Tory's presser trying to somehow clear up all this confusion. What can you tell me about, about this, this damn social media slash news media getting it all wrong when, when the shelters have had beds all along? Well, quite frankly, let's start with the tweet that said someone put out information that was false information and that that information stated that people were calling for shelter beds and being told that there were none. Yeah, according to Syria Grell of John Tory's office, this all can be traced to one person's incorrect tweet. So one person says that, and according to Syria Grell, that's not true. And then the media just picks up on it without verifying it and repeats the idea that people are calling and not getting a bed. Yeah. Siri knows better than this. And not only is her comment inaccurate, which I'll get to in a second, it's deeply, deeply offensive to the people like Jillian Kala, who she was talking about. Jillian Kala is a volunteer worker with Toronto Overdose Prevention Site. Mm -hmm. It is a volunteer-run site out of Moss Park, a trailer that is every day serving dozens of people in this city who don't have a safe place to inject. And they are also doing things like providing referrals to shelter beds. Because like 10 o'clock rolls along and their supervised injection site closes and they got to get these people some shelter because it's freezing outside. And she's the one who said, we can't find beds because they're, they're at capacity. Siri says that was wrong and that got uh, broken telephone repeated. So yeah. first of all, that was not wrong. Uh -huh. That's what happened. Jillian Kala told that to the media, but then we did our jobs as media and a whole bunch of us called. And yeah. we, many of us, recorded our conversations with people in central intake telling us 
No, there are no beds available. I know this was verified. I know that uh, I think that Jaron Kerr of previously worked with us here at Canadaland, now at the Toronto Star, he was on the story. I know that Mick Sweetman says that he verified this himself. He's a reporter who called the shelters and said, no, that they won't take people. But we see the tactic, right? What Syria Grell Mayor Staffer said was completely inaccurate. You see that she has not said, guys, I was wrong. Now she's saying, well, I just don't want anyone putting out information before we know what's happening. This is a staffer for an administration... Now let's go to what happened today, who themselves say they have no idea what's going on. So this is the irony, is that Mayor Tory and shelter staff say, we believe capacity for our shelters is around 95%. We acknowledge that people call every night and are told, sorry, no bed available. But we still believe it's about 95% capacity. We have no clue what's going on in the discrepancy. We just throw numbers out at you. Isn't it ironic that while Siri says something about information being thrown out that can't be verified. Yeah. That she's actually working for an administration that's doing the same thing. And they're not uh, some individual, some reckless individual just putting out information. They are the city administration. They have a much higher burden of responsibility than those of us who are reporting on what they're doing. I still think we're doing a good job. And I think that the advocates who are recording their own conversations showing that there's no capacity, they're doing a good job. Uh, The city is not doing its job, which would be if people are calling and being told no bed, sorry, but there are beds available. You need to reconcile that. And what we heard today at the press conference is we cannot right now reconcile that distinction. We don't know why people call and are told no bed is available. It's not, all we know is that it's not because we're full. We know for a fact that we are not full, that we have space every night. We just, we just don't So how can both why. things be true? I mean, okay, so Siri Agrell is arguably is doing her job because her job is to protect uh, John Tory and that involves spinning that's things. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. That's oh, such a Oh, I'm not modern... defending it, but that is what she's, that, that's part of her job, right? No, it's right? not. I don't, we don't, do we pay her salary as the public? Absolutely. So we don't pay people to mislead us. We don't pay people to attack members of the public who are doing an excellent and difficult job as mm-hmm. volunteers and discredit them because they say something that puts the administration under scrutiny. No, we do not pay people to do that. Well, in a perfect world, perhaps we don't. My job is to help people understand how information works and how policy works. And this is a great example of of this 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 uh, ass covering and selective interpretation of of stats. Like we can trace this back. You can trace this back quite far because my understanding is that this question of the city saying that we have everything we need when it comes to shelters and people on the streets when it gets cold, finding that not to be true, goes back a long time. Here's John Tory. In early December 2017, getting really angry talking to Matt Galloway on Metro Morning about the suggestion that he needs to open up the armories because winter is coming and we're not well equipped. I stepped forward with a plan to help. It's a plan that's going to work and it's a plan that also has the uh, stamp of approval of our experts that we employ and of people from the outside that I brought in to consult on this. And that's why I just get angry that there, there, uh, yes, I do. I get angry at the fact that there's sort of an orthodoxy that a, a small group of people, you know, suggest that it's their way or no way. And I just don't accept that. I have a job to do here to make decisions in the end, and I based it on expert advice, and we're moving forward to get it done. So lo and behold, winter comes, it's freezing. Imagine. This longstanding problem, which may have a honest explanation, I, I understand it's not just about we have this many beds, 
and first come, first serve until they're filled. There's some beds are for women, some beds are for men, some beds are for families. So I, I guess that could explain how you could be. It doesn't. Uh, I, I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> as, somebody, as somebody who's been covering this, but let's talk about- And then let, we let's... get into a moment here, just looking at sort of the way this has played out in the media, where you have, uh, then it gets a crisis point, which is pretty predictable, that it was going to get colder and we're going to hit this crisis point. Somebody who's actually on the ground, we have an activist who's trying to find beds for people who need them, tweets out what is true, which is that they're getting turned away from the shelters, gets thrown under the bus by a spin doctor. Mayors have spin doctors. Maybe they shouldn't, but they do. Yes, they do. Uh, and, and that's what Siri does is basically blame this all. The The root of all of this is this one irresponsible, unverified uh, tweet. And then a side swipe at the media for repeating that without verifying it. Actually, they did verify it. I, I think and what... then all of that leads us to this morning, Open the Armories becomes a hashtag in Toronto. Sarah Pauly writes a piece in the Toronto Star and all good feeling thinking people like open the fucking armories and give people a place to sleep. And that leads to John Tory having a press conference this morning. You attended. And what does he say? He's going to open the armories. He's going to be talking to the federal government about opening an armory. But this is important, not because the public asked him to. Right. Is that what you heard? Like, oh, no, this is an active, fluid situation, I, I, I think was the, the mayor's term that he used. And so it's not that they didn't budget properly. It's the messages that uh, things have evolved since three and a half weeks ago, uh-huh. uh, which, you know, you can make your own judgments about. Let's go back five years, though. In 2013, Rob Ford faced the same thing. Rob Ford faced a situation where it was extremely cold outside, where the ongoing shelter crisis in Toronto could not be ignored in that moment because the uh, extreme weather and the overcapacity um, just combined in a way that made the crisis so palatable, so visible. So what did uh, Mayor Tory do, at, or sorry, Mayor Ford do at that time? I do get them confused. Um, he called a press conference. He actually waited until Ontario Coalition Against Poverty were holding a press conference, and then he called one at the same time. I'll never forget this. And what he did was to say, everything's fine, everyone. The activists are lying, so same messaging again. Yeah. Uh, but also, everything is fine in our system. Our system is working great. I think the difference you're seeing in message this time is, Yes, these activists, these crazy activists, again, always trying to push us to do something. But, you know, now that we have reassessed the situation, perhaps given our expertise and all of our wisdom, we will decide to open up some more spaces. And yes, there's no credit given to the people who are literally outside in the cold telling the city that there is an emergency. They are not even mentioned. So that is uh, Mayor Tory's strategy is different from Ford. They're doing the same thing, which is trying to push away the problem, trying to not have to own the problem. The only difference in their uh, communication about it is that one just kind of does the uh, Trumpian thing, which is to say everything's great, everything's perfect, I'm the best at everything. And the other one kind of says, I'm so deeply concerned I have so much love for everything and everyone. Yeah. At least Ford uh, didn't pretend that he cared. He didn't. Desmond, you're here speaking as a journalist. You are here speaking, God forbid, as an activist. Is there a further disclosure? Because if you are running against John Tory- I knew you were going to do this. If you're going to be running against John Tory to be the next mayor of Toronto, uh, that's something that our listeners should know as you criticize John Tory. Do you think that I like woke up in the morning- 
put on my underwear and was like, do you know what I'm going to do today? <laughs> I'm going to go on the radio with Jesse. I'm going to go on Jesse's podcast and announce my, uh, yeah. so uh, nothing to announce. Except that I put on underwear today. No. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to be running for mayor. <laughs> I, I'm, the reason I haven't answered that question since uh, people started talking about it last year is that I'm still in conversation with people, people that I really trust and care about and would potentially want to work with about whether or not this is a really good idea or not. And I just want to respect that. So there's still people that I want to talk to before I say yes or no. And when I've made up my mind, I promise I will, uh, I will let you know. That was definitively indefinite. You don't know. You don't know whether you're going to run for mayor or not. That's what you just said, right? I don't know. And, uh, I don't know. Desmond, that is our shortcuts for today. Thank you for joining me for it. Always a pleasure. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Desmond Cole, where can people find you? Where I live, on Twitter, at Desmond Cole. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode of Shortcuts was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.